Today I want us to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. This is a verse that's going to be familiar to a lot of you, um, but I hope we can look at it in a different way today. Tomorrow, of course, is our nation's birthday. We celebrate uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and we'll celebrate in different ways. Some of you... Uh, Some of us are going to wake up and get in the car and drive to see family and friends. Some of us are going to sit at home, maybe watch TV and hope they have a a good uh, patriotic marathon of movies on on one of the movie channels or History Channel has something about the American Revolution. I always enjoy that. Some of us are uh, are going to eat way too much because that's the way the founding fathers would have wanted it, right? Uh, Some of us are going to wait till night and blow stuff up. And uh, blow it up real good, because we're good at that. And because uh, tomorrow is our nation's birthday, or as my dog knows it, the worst night of the year, right? And today, in pulpits all across this country, preachers are preaching on this text. Not every preacher, but many will. And I don't want to sound arrogant, but I know this will. Frankly, I think a lot of preachers and a lot of Christians get this verse wrong. And I'm going to explain why this morning, and I hope, I hope I can explain this well. But let's look at Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forget, forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And when I say most Christians get this verse wrong, what I mean is this. When we quote this verse, we often say it as though we think it means that if everybody out there, outside the church, if all those unbelievers would turn back to God, then God would bless America. It's not on us, it's on them. It's all the godless people in our culture that are making our nation something less than it should be. And if they would just come back to God, then God would bless America. And when we say bless America, we mean that everything would go back to the way it was in the good old days, or obviously better than the good old days ever were. An America where the person in the Oval Office is always an evangelical Christian, or at least always someone who agrees with us, uh, where the unemployment rate goes to zero, we have fantastic infrastructure without paying any taxes, where everything on TV is family-friendly, crime is non-existent, and even the French start liking us again, where uh, there's a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage, and those cars run clean on fuel that costs less than a dollar a gallon, where everything is the way it ought to be. And that's not what this verse is about. I want you to know that. That's not what this verse is about. It's important for us to ask, who was this verse spoken to and what was God actually promising? Now, if you know the scriptures, you know that the the greatest king Israel ever had before Jesus was David. David died and his son Solomon became king. When Solomon was new on the throne, God revealed himself to him and said, listen, I loved your father. Your father was devoted to me. And so I will give you whatever you ask. I want you to succeed. So ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon, a young man, was smart enough to say, what I need most is not wealth, it's not long life, it's not the death of all my enemies. What I need more than anything, Lord, is wisdom to lead this great people of yours. I can't follow in my father's footsteps unless I have you on my side. And God said, I love that. Good choice. I will give it to you. And Solomon was bestowed with more wisdom than any person had ever had up to that time. And his, his kingdom got off to a great start. One of the first things he did was build a temple 
to the Lord. Now, the people of God had been worshiping in a tent ever since the days of Moses, the big tent that they called the tabernacle. This would be the first permanent dwelling of God among the people of God ever. And so for seven years, Solomon and the most skilled craftsmen and artisans in Israel, the strongest backs, they labored seven years to build this incredible edifice right there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And finally it was finished. And chapter 6, which we won't read today, but is well worth your time. In chapter 6, Solomon gets up at the dedication of the temple and he prays this epic prayer. And the, the basic summary of the prayer is, Lord, we can't do this without you. Lord, if you abandon us, we're lost. So please stay with us. And when we fail you, and we will because we're human. And when you punish us because you are too righteous to let our sin go unpunished. When that happens, and when we finally turn back to you and repent, please bring us home. Don't, don't continue to reject us for our sin. But when we repent, give us forgiveness, heal us, make us whole again. And it, Solomon said amen to that prayer and immediately Fire fell from heaven and consumed all the sacrifices in the temple that Solomon had carefully and meticulously laid out. And the presence of God came down and inhabited that building so powerfully that the priests couldn't even walk in. It was, it was too thick with fog and with smoke. The presence of God in that place so heavy that the priests couldn't even do their work. And the people were overwhelmed and they celebrated for two solid weeks. For two weeks, no work was done in Israel. The people were all gathered in Jerusalem, eating and drinking and celebrating the glory of God. And, and it had been a great day to be there. Now, immediately after those days, Solomon started working on his own house. And he built the palace in Jerusalem. The palace of the king took 13 years to build, nearly twice as long as the temple. And at the end of those 13 years, as Solomon was moving into the house, God showed up again. For the second time, he made himself known to Solomon personally in, in a physical way. And the second time is what we read about in chapter 7. So essentially, when God shows up and says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. What God is essentially saying is, hey, Solomon, remember that prayer you prayed 13 years ago? I'm going to answer it. I'm going to do what you asked. When you fail me, and you will. And when I punish you, and I will, if you turn back to me, there will always be forgiveness. I will never reject you forever. You will always have a home here as long as you turn back to me. And if you know the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, and I hope you have, you know that God is basically giving Solomon a forecast of what the rest of the story is going to be, foreshadowing, basically. He's saying, it's going to happen. Your people are going to stray from me. They're, they're going to... They're going to wander, they're going to go after other gods, they're going to become corrupt financially and emotionally, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to stray from my commands and, and live lives that are not pleasing to me, and because I'm righteous, I'm going to punish that. It's going to happen. You're going to experience plagues, you're going to experience droughts, you're going to experience conquest on the part of other nations, but in the midst of your defeat, as far as you are from me, I will bring you home the very first time you turn your steps back toward me. Remember, we just got finished with the parable of the prodigal son. Isn't that the same message? The son starts on his way home and the father runs to meet him. That's what God is promising here, long before Jesus. And we know that was the history of Israel over and over again. They strayed from God, they came home. They would stray from God and God would send them a great king like Hezekiah or Josiah or Jehoshaphat. Or he would send them a prophet like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they would come home. Eventually, 
Israel wandered so far from God, he was forced to do the unthinkable. And he sent, he allowed the, the Babylonian Empire to conquer Israel, his people. And they flattened the walls of Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground and carried his people off into exile. And folks, if it would have been any other group of people in the world, that would have been the end of them. If it would have been Hittites or Sumerians or anybody else, that would have been the end of the people of God. And you and I would only know them if we stayed awake in world history class. But because God was their God. After 70 years, the people of God recognized their sin and cried out to God, and God answered their prayer. He, he fulfilled the promise he gave us in this verse, and he brought them home. And Israel once again inhabited their homeland against all odds. Folks, let me just say this. I believe in God for a number of reasons, but if I didn't have any other reason, I would believe in God for this reason alone. The Jewish people continue to exist because God has a plan for them. I mean, think about all the people that have tried to eliminate this little group of people throughout history, and no one has ever succeeded because God is their God, because God has a plan for them in the future. Romans talks about this. That's not what I'm here to preach on, but I just had to say that. Here's the thing. What verse 14 is really about is a promise from the God of heaven to the people of Old Testament Israel. That's what it's about. God is making a promise to a group of people with whom he has had a covenant since the days of Abraham. Now, here's the bad news. We can't claim this promise for the United States of America. It's not biblically right. This promise was made to Old Testament Israel. It doesn't apply to any nation on earth today. America does not have a covenant with God that separates it from any other nation. I know that our Puritan forefathers landed on the shores and they said we want to be a city on a hill and I think they were sincere about that. That was their desire. That was not God promising this country to us like he did to the Old Testament Jews. In fact, some will disagree with me on this. I don't think this applies even to Israel of today because when Jesus arrived, he brought a new covenant. The old covenant with Israel was gone. There's a new covenant. Now you don't have to be Jewish to be part of God's family. You just have to know Jesus. So this does not apply to any nation, not including ours. The good news, see the bad news is if, if, if we think that all we have to do is just pray real hard and God's going to solve all our problems and America's going to be great again, we're basically trying to cash a check that was written to someone else. The good news, though, is this verse still applies. Who does it apply to? To the people of God who are called by his name. Who are the people of God who are called by his name? Not Americans, not Israelites, not Koreans or Argentinians or anybody else. It's people, Jewish and Gentile, black, white, brown, yellow, of every color, of every language group, of every nation who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Basically, if Jesus is your king, this verse applies to you. What God is saying here is, if my people, the people who serve me, when they have strayed from me and they recognize how far they've gotten from me, if they call upon me in sincerity, I will restore them and I will make them strong again. I will restore everything they've lost and I will make them the people that I've always wanted them to be. I will never give up on my people. That's good news. Let me ask you something. Do you think the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America needs healing? Yeah, I do too. 
I do too. Let me give you some statistics. Don't want to depress you. I know this is a holiday weekend, but we need to face facts. In our country today, 85% of churches are not growing. In fact, most are losing membership. Eight to 10,000 churches, eight to 10,000 churches will close their doors for the last time this year. One out of five Americans today claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. That's the highest that statistic has ever been. That is the fastest growing group in our nation. Just to give you some illustration, in 1990, which wasn't that long ago, in 1990, the number was 7%. Now it's 20. By the way, among young Americans, it's 40%. So yeah, it's a problem. We have lost cultural influence in our nation so quickly, so rapidly, over the last five to ten years, we're still trying to grasp where we really stand in our culture today. All I know is it wasn't true four or five years ago, but it is true now. All you have to do is publicly agree with what the Scripture teaches on certain controversial subjects, and you're immediately labeled a bigot, and you're the subject of protest. So that should tell you something. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ is in trouble. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ in America is struggling. Yes, we have drifted and we're paying the consequences. But the good news is, the good news is in the past, we've done this before. It's happened. The church in America has drifted. The church in America has waned in its influence and its power and God has awakened it. It's happened several times. Now, I know some of you aren't into history, so bear with me for just a moment. I am a bit of a history nerd. I'm going to try not to nerd out on you, but I have to share with you some important things you may not have learned in history class, even if you did stay awake. There's a history in our nation of religious awakening, of spiritual awakening that a lot of folks don't realize. The first great awakening in the history of our land happened before we were even a country, Two generations before the revolution in the 1730s and 40s, the first great awakening was sparked in, in New England. Uh, one of the main drivers of it was a man named Jonathan Edwards, other, other Puritan and Anglican preachers like him. And folks, we're talking about guys in powdered wigs and clerical robes, stiff Anglicans who stood up on lofty pulpits and read their sermons from a prepared manuscript. These were not theatrical people. And yet as they stood and read in a monotone, people flocked into their churches by the thousands. People stood in fields hoping they would come and speak to them. And they would weep and they would faint out of conviction of sin. And by the thousands, they were giving their lives to Christ. It was happening over and over and over again. It changed the trajectory of our nation. Schools, some of the finest schools in our nation today, schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, were started during the First Great Awakening specifically to train ministers to continue the movement of God in our country. Some of the most important principles in the founding documents of our country, principles like the separation of church and state, religious liberty, and the, the basic equality of all humans before God, those came out of the First Great Awakening. Without that event, there's no United States as we know it today. But within a couple of generations, right around the time of the American Revolution and beyond, the church had already lost influence again. It had already gone back to where it was before. I know we like to think that the, the American Revolution was a time of, of great uh, religious and, and spiritual patriots fighting against an evil uh, 
church state dominated, state church dominated country. It wasn't quite like that if you listen to the people who were alive back then. Timothy Dwight was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, who I spoke of earlier and was president of Harvard, a godly man. He had this to say about those days. He said, and I quote, profaneness of language, drunkenness, gambling, and lewdness were exceedingly increased. And there was a light, vain method of thinking concerning sacred things, a cold, contemptuous indifference toward every moral and religious subject. You may not know this, but some, some of the founding fathers, people like uh, Ethan Allen, Thomas Paine, were unbelievers and were fighting against the spread of Christianity. Many others were devout, but not all. To, in combination with this, the frontier was being opened. Once America was free, after the revolution was over, people started moving west, leaving the cities of the 13 original colonies and staking their claim out on the frontier. And there weren't any churches out there. And the Christian movement back then wasn't, wasn't adapted. We didn't know how to plant churches in new places. We didn't know about sending out missionaries. It wasn't part of our DNA yet. And so the, the Christian leaders in New England at that time really feared that this new nation was going to become the most godless nation on earth. But God heard their prayers, and the Second Great Awakening occurred. In late 1790s, it lasted 40 years, longest awakening in the history of our nation. Powerful preaching. I could name some of the, some of the men and women who, who spoke the word of God in those days, but millions came to know Christ. Some of the most important movements in our nation's history were birthed during that Second Great Awakening. The movement to abolish slavery came out of the Second Great Awakening. So did the movement to send missionaries throughout the world. As Baptists, we, we just take it for granted that you're supposed to send money so missionaries can go to other countries. That didn't exist until this movement of God's Holy Spirit. A third great awakening happened in the middle of the 1800s, in the 1850s, and it was totally different than the previous two because no preachers were really involved. Believe it or not, God can do great things without people like me. It actually happened because a businessman, a Christian businessman in New York City of all places, decided to start hosting a prayer luncheon once a week in an office building. And soon, people from all over the city were leaving work at lunch and going to this prayer lunch. In fact, businesses were closing at midday so their employees could attend. By the thousands they came, they kept having to, to go to bigger and bigger facilities. Eventually, that movement spread to other cities. And today, uh, experts will tell you over a million people came to know Christ just because that one businessman started praying. Think about that for a moment. Another great awakening took place around the turn of the 20th century on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California was where it began. We know it today as the beginning of the charismatic movement. Now, I know, I know, I, I grew up Baptist. My great-grandparents and grandparents were terrified of the charismatic movement, of Pentecostals, and what's going to happen if they come into our church. And yes, churches did split throughout the 20th century over this. And yes, I do have some issues with charismatic theology. We could talk about that another time, but let me just say, some of the best Christians I know are part of that movement. God is winning souls worldwide through charismatic Christians in a way that he's not through Baptists. So I call them my brothers. And I remember a professor of mine in Southwestern Seminary said it well. I thought it, I thought it was perfect. He said, don't be worried about your church turning charismatic. He said, it's a whole lot easier to put out a fire than it is to wake the dead. That was a movement of God that is still having impact on our world today. 
The last awakening we know of in this country took place in the early 1970s, and it happened in the most unexpected place among the hippies and the counterculture. Thousands started coming to know Christ. Some of you may remember this. The, the hippies called them Jesus people. Uh, Christian churches didn't know what to do with them. These folks started coming into our churches. They still had their long hair and, and their ratty clothes, and we didn't know what to do with them. Uh, sad to say, a lot of churches turned them away. But it was a legitimate movement of God. The, the contemporary music, uh, Christian music movement of today was birthed out of that. A lot of other great things happened because God chose to move in a group that a lot of churches had written off. Now, we're in a time uh, of, of waning influence. It's happened before. But I want you to know God is not asleep. God is doing great things around our world. There are awakenings of God in other parts of our planet just talk to Larry Daigle about the work that he gets to see and be a part of in Africa right now. Last night he told me his organization, International Commission, just his organization, is able to document and confirm 168,000 people have come to Christ since January in Africa. And that's just their organization. And that's just the people they're sure of. The real total is probably more like a quarter million. And that doesn't even count all the other groups that are doing work in Africa and all the other indigenous churches that are spreading the gospel. God's doing an amazing thing on that continent. Think about China. You may or may not know this, but in a country that, where the government is actively opposed to the spread of the gospel, experts tell us that within, within a few years, there will be more Christians in China than any other country on the face of the earth. The more they persecute the church, the more it spreads. Get on the internet sometime, you, you, you won't get this in, in any other source, but if you'll, just, if you'll just research, you'll see that in the Muslim world, in countries where we can't send missionaries openly, where churches can't even function openly, there are thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Christ, leaving Islam and coming to know Christ, not because of any missionary or, or any evangelistic work, but simply because Jesus is appearing to them in dreams and visions. God's doing amazing things. He's done amazing things here before and he can do them again and I believe he will do them again. But what would that look like? What would it look like if another great awakening came about in our time? I want to just daydream for a moment if you'll, if you'll join me in this. I want you to imagine that suddenly in every city, in every town, every church was packed every Sunday and not packed with people who were there to impress others, and not packed with people who were there to manipulate God into blessing their dreams and fulfilling their wishes, but packed with people who came desperate, hungry, and eager to just say, Lord, whatever you want me to be, I'll be. I'll be your hands. I'll be your feet. I'll be your mouth. I'll be whatever you need me to be to my neighbors. I will love them as you love them, and I will do it all in your name. What if in every city, the Christian people, the people who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, actually lived up to their name and actually took initiative to work together across denominational lines to find solutions to the problems in their city that break the heart of God? What if that was our highest priority? Not the things that we tend to care about, but the things that God cares about. What if, what if in every city you would see racial reconciliation take place because the people of God would actually be honest enough to talk about what causes racial division and address it? What if, what if God's people were so active in the lives of the poor, they didn't just give an offering or, or hand out food and clothing, but they actually mentored 
poor neighbors and homeless people they knew and help them learn life skills, help them learn how to manage money, help them learn how to get and keep a job so that generational cycles of poverty would be broken. And instead of a mom who gave birth to kids who were poor, just like their parents were poor and their grandparents and great-grandparents before them, those cycles would be broken and people would learn how to function and get hope. You'd see addictions broken because there would be people there to walk with addicts through the process of recovery. You'd see schools and neighborhoods transform because we would take responsibility for them. Instead of fleeing struggling schools and, and declining neighborhoods, we'd go live there and turn things around. You'd see broken families brought back together as we'd walk alongside children who were estranged from their parents and wives who didn't love their husbands anymore. You'd see within churches models of marital love that were so compelling that the world would see the distinct contrast between their definition of marriage and God's definition of marriage. And they'd see which one is true. They'd see which one is better. God's people would give generously and cheerfully of their resources and their time and their talents. And we would go out into the community to work and to serve, and problems would get addressed all around the world. Abortion rates would go down because there wouldn't be so many unwanted children. Crime rates would go down, not because we're building more jails, but because we're addressing the root causes of those crimes. I'm not saying that the church can solve every problem. We can't. The only thing that's going to change everything for good is when Jesus returns. But I cannot deny that if the people of God acted like the people of God, this nation would be healthier and God would get the glory. You just can't argue against that. And best of all, millions upon millions of our neighbors, co-workers, friends, relatives who right now are destined for eternity apart from Christ would have their earthly lives and their eternal destinies changed forever for good simply because we started functioning like we were meant to function. That's what a great awakening looks like. And it could happen again. And I don't know, I don't know what you think about that, but I think that sounds pretty good. I think that sounds like something we ought to be hoping for and praying about and longing for. So what, what are we supposed to do? Well, we look back to what the scripture says. God does not say, push these buttons and awakening happens. God doesn't work that way. But if we want awakening to happen, if we want to be restored and healed, let's look at what God tells us our responsibility is. He says three things. Number one, humble yourself. Humble yourself. We don't even know what humility is, most of us. What we call humility is really low self-esteem. But think about what Israel did. When Israel was carried off into exile, they finally humbled themselves. What did that mean? It meant for the first time they took responsibility. And they said, well, it's not because we had lousy kings that were here. It's not because the Babylonians are so evil. It's because we turned away from God. We worshiped other gods and we turned away from his ways. And now we're paying the consequences. Lord, forgive us. Once they finally acknowledged their own responsibility and sin, God healed them. And as God's people today, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're awfully good at blaming others. Man, I... I I'm on social media with a lot of fellow Christians and I see a lot of ranting and raving about all the problems with people out there. And I just think, you know, if Jesus was here, he'd have a different song. He would take us to task. 
He'd wonder why people like me can afford a house where three or four families my size can live with cable TV and internet and two cars and a nice vacation last week, but I can't give more to his work. And I complain that I don't have enough. I live in a country where I'm free to worship and share my faith anytime I want, but I rarely do. I think Jesus would have words for me, not, not for the guy of another religion or the atheist or the person of an alternate lifestyle out there. He'd be reaching them. They're the people he's trying to reach for salvation, but he'd take me to task. Why am I not doing more? Let's humble ourselves. Let's get right with God. Let's just say, Lord, we're not who we need to be. It's not somebody else's fault our country's in the shape it is. We're the ones called to be salt. We're the ones called to be light. And we're not doing it. The second thing Jesus said, or God said to Solomon, is pray and seek his face. I know we all pray. I bet everybody in this room, no matter how devout you are, you pray, probably daily. But how often do we really seek his face? Most of us are a lot more interested in his hand. We want to know what he's going to do for us. But think about that for a moment. What if you were in a relationship with someone who the only time they spoke to you was when they needed something? Imagine, imagine what it's like to be God and we come to him on a regular basis daily and just say, okay, Lord, I'm feeling bad. Can you do something about that? Okay, Lord, I don't have enough money. Can you, you know drop a little rain, a little blessing from heaven or something. Lord, I, I, my car's broken down. I asked you to do something about that last week. I'm still waiting. I'm on a schedule here. Lord, the guy, that guy at my office, I can't stand him. You know he's a dirt bag. Why don't you, you know, run him over with a bus or afflict him with head lice the size of schnauzers? I don't know. Do something to him. You know, after a while, God must start to think, maybe you don't really love me. Maybe you're just trying to use me for what I can do for you. So why not just come to him? Say, Lord, I've got things that I need, and you know about those things. I've shared them with you, but I just need to know you better. I just need to seek you and, and know who you are. And I know some of you sit there and say, but I can't just sit in the presence of God and, and, and enjoy him. I, I'm just not that spiritual. You know what? I'm not either. In fact, I don't think any of us is, but God can change us. God can teach us to wean ourselves off of spiritual junk food and, and hunger for the bread of life. He really can. And so let me challenge you to just pray to him and say, Lord, I don't desire you like I should. I'm hungry for all kinds of things that won't really satisfy me. Teach me to hunger and thirst for you. Teach me to get excited about you. Lord, it, it's a shame that I can walk into church and, and Robert has prepared this fantastic worship service and I can just sing these songs and not even mean a word that I've said. Lord, teach me to hunger and thirst for you so that I come and, and really sing your praise. Lord, it's a shame that I can pray anytime I want and you're, you're awake and aware and you hear all my prayers and all I ever do is ask you for stuff. Lord, teach me just to listen to you sometimes. Give me a hunger for you, a hunger only you can fill. Pray that prayer. He'll answer it. He'll change your heart. So humble ourselves, seek his face. And then third, turn from our wicked ways. Well, what does that mean? That's really the definition of repentance. I know we hear repentance and we think, oh, that means feeling sorry for your sin, but that's not repentance. You know, a, a husband could cheat on his wife and, and then he could come and, and fall on his knees before and say, honey, I'm so sorry. I never meant to hurt you. I wish this had never happened. 
And he could be absolutely sincere, but he's not repentant until he breaks off the relationship with the other woman, right? That relationship can't be restored until the, the adulterous relationship is over. It's the same with all of our sin. We haven't really repented just because we weep before God and say, man, I sure am sorry about what I did. We repent when we turn away and say, that's never happening again. It's interesting when you read the Old Testament, how often God compares adultery to idolatry. And it's apt when you think about it. Adultery is when you give what only your spouse deserves to somebody else. And idolatry is when you give what only God deserves to something else. God deserves our devotion. God deserves to be our sole hope and our our source of joy. God deserves to be our identity. And yet we give those things to other things. I love the Lord, but really what I'm hoping for is more money. I praise you, Jesus, but what I really think is important is pushing my political ideology I, I, I love the Lord, but, you know, what's most important is getting my son onto the right select baseball team or my daughter into the right college because, you know, I'm going to be old someday and I want them to take care of me. We have our idols. As God's people, God's going to bring healing to his people when we acknowledge those idols and renounce them. And we say, Lord, I don't need those things. I need you and anything else you choose to give me. So what are we supposed to do with this? What I hope happens as a result of this message is I hope we each go home and begin to daily humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our sin honestly. I hope that we stop blaming others for our problems but actually take responsibility for being the people of God. I hope that we'll learn to seek his face. We'll learn to be excited about who God is and and knowing him better. I hope that that we'll practice repentance on a daily basis. And I hope, most importantly, that we'll pray that that same spirit will spread to others. I hope that you'll feel it in your heart to get together with a friend or somebody else once in a while and say, hey, let's just get together and pray for revival in our church, in our country. That's what I hope happens. Because awakening has happened before, and I believe it'll happen again. And I think God's just waiting for his people to listen to his word and get right before him. And the good news, the really, really good news, I know this is a weird year. There's an election coming up that is the weirdest election I have ever been a part of. And that's all I'm going to say about that in the words of that theologian, Forrest Gump. But um, the good news is, no matter who's president, Jesus is still king. And he's the kind of king who doesn't sit up on high and offer impossible edicts and then watch us squirm. He came down to us. He became lowly like one of us. And he offered himself in our place. He took our punishment. He died for us so we wouldn't have to. He experienced hell so we don't have to. And then three days later, he rose again and showed us that death is no match for the God we believe in. And then he sent his Holy Spirit, let's not forget about that, to live inside of us, to give us the power to live the lives that he has called us to live. And so a God, a king who cares about us that much, if we just cry out to him for awakening and healing, don't you think he'll offer it? Don't you think he'll be true to his promise? I sure do. That's why no matter what happens in the news, I have hope. And I'm excited. 
because there's still a lot of people in this country who are the people of God, who call themselves by his name. And I know that the most patriotic thing any of us could possibly do is just to call on our God for revival and to do it tirelessly. And that's what I challenge you to do.